We're going to be in Acts chapter 2 today. If you want to go ahead and grab your Bible, your app, and turn to Acts chapter 2. I want to talk a little bit about community this morning because I feel like this is for us as the body of Christ, specifically the local bodies like, like this, this is kind of the anchor for us to be able to say um, what's most important for us is Jesus being made known to the world around us. And this, I think, is maybe one of the best ways for us as the body of Christ to show the gospel to the world around us. Um, let me just give you as you turn in a, just a, a preview of what's been going on. Jesus has left. He's met his disciples on a mountain. He's ascended back into heaven. They, uh, about 10 days later, go into this upper room and the Holy Spirit comes and indwells them. And all of a sudden, these guys, likely teenagers or young 20-year-olds who were timid enough prior to the cross to deny Jesus, now all of a sudden, by the power of the Spirit, stand up at this, this, this uh, time when there are Jews from all over the world Jews from all over the world gathered for these festivals, these Jewish festivals, and all of a sudden these timid guys now empowered by the Spirit stand up and Peter preaches this incredible message to this group of Jews who've gathered from all over the world. And here's what happens at the, at the, end, of, uh, at the end of this sermon. Let me just read it to you in, in Acts chapter 2, verse 41. It says, those who received his word were baptized. And here's what happened. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So like 3,000 people get saved. Can you imagine that, James? Like preaching and then all of a sudden 3,000 people get saved. I can't, I can't imagine the, the rush. Side note, real quick, real quick. It's interesting to me that the day the law came, the Mosaic law in the Old Testament, 3,000 people were killed. And the day the Spirit comes, 3,000 people are saved. Mm. It's great to be in the grace of God. Amen? Amen? So 3,000 people get saved, and they're from all over the world. So they don't have anywhere to go. They don't, they don't know what to do. They're like, what do we do next? What do we do now? We've put our faith in Jesus. And so here's what happens. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. Here's what they did. These, all these people who've gathered from all over the world, who've now put their faith in Jesus Christ, verse 42 says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. It says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Listen to this. Day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received food with glad and generous hearts, praising God, having favor with all the people. And here's what happened. When the church acts like the church, here's what happens. And it says, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. You want to know how the world gets to see a clear picture of the gospel? You want to know how we as a church can reach the world with the gospel and see people get saved? We act like the church and here's what happens. God adds to our number day by day those who are being saved because they see a clear picture of the gospel in us. So what does that look like? I want to just kind of go through Acts chapter 2 verse 42 and just, just glean some things out of here that hopefully will be encouraging for us as a body and how we can be the church of Jesus Christ in a way so that the world can see the gospel in us. The first thing he says is they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Help me out this morning. Say teaching. Come on, say teaching. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, I want you to think about this. I, I grew up, most of you probably grew up in this environment, if you grew up around the church or in the church, where I always heard this, this idea that you got to have your daily quiet time. 
which is, I think, an amazing discipline to have. But it never went past that. I don't know about you, but I never heard someone say your daily quiet time then transfers into community with other believers. It was like, make sure you have your daily quiet time and that's your thing. Nobody else was part of that. There's 3,000 people gathered with the believers and what do they do? They together communally devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. Together. I cannot tell you the difference it makes when your time in the Word translates to time in the Word with other Christians. When you get together over coffee or even better at Dr. Pepper and you just talk about the things God is teaching you, there is something amazing that happens. Listen, if you're, if you're a hermit, if you're an introvert and you want to just do it on your own, great. But I think you're missing out on the joys of communal time in the Word. He said they have devoted themselves to the apostles' what? Teaching. We grow together as a community, listen, as we learn God's word together, together, together. When I was 15, God called me to ministry and uh, I had a buddy named Matt Bramlett who we were at two separate summer camps the week God called us to, to ministry. Same week, two separate camps. We came back together. We were already friends. And I was like, Matt, dude, I feel like God's calling me to ministry. And Matt was kind of an introvert, kind of soft-spoken. He was like, yeah, the same thing happened to me. <laughs> I was like, yeah, let's go. And so Matt and I decided at 15 years old that we were done trying to live life like all the other teenagers and we were ready to invest our life into Jesus. So we started hanging out together and literally just reading the Bible together. Then we had another buddy named Brian who also felt called to ministry and we decided instead of partying like everybody else on Friday nights after the football games, we would get together every Friday night at one of our houses and we would just read the Bible together. We would talk about the Bible together. We would ask questions like what is the book of Lamentations about? I'm not still really sure exactly what was going on there. We would ask questions questions like, you know, what was going on when the spirit was given? What is it, you know, what are, what are all these things that are going on? We would just talk about things we had no idea about. Matt Bramlett is a worship pastor in Boston, Massachusetts. Brian Poppy is a pastor in Dallas, Texas. You know what launched us in a ministry? It's because we learned God's word together. We would spend hours on Friday night just reading through the Psalms. I cannot tell you the impact that made in my life and their life because it wasn't just me doing it on my own. We did it together. You want to grow? Get into the word with other people. Together. Together. Do it together. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. It was communal. It was together. Our personal time in the word shouldn't just stay our personal time. It's got to have your quiet time. Have your time with the Lord. Then text somebody. Oh my goodness. I cannot believe what I learned in the word today. Just let other people be part of that. Devote ourselves, let's devote ourselves to, to the word of God, to the teaching of God together. Next thing it says is that they've devoted themselves to the fellowship or fellowship. Say fellowship. Come on, say fellowship. The, 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 the word fellowship here in the Greek, it implies an intimate bond. So I, when I, my dad's a pastor, I was that kid. I was that kid. Um, when we would say we're having a fellowship, all that was really implied was food, like potluck. Like, you know, we're having a fellowship. And I just knew that there was going to be some good desserts. There was going to be that one casserole that was the god-awful, most worst, awful thing I'd ever had in my entire life. Everything else was good. You know, you know what I'm talking about? There's that one person who's like, I got a bunch of this stuff in my fridge I got to get rid of. And you throw it in a pan and you cook it and then you take it to church. You know, like, 
Everything else was fantastic. So that, when I grew up thinking fellowship, fellowship was just like eating together. But the word here actually implies something more than just a gathering. It implies more than just a program. It implies intimacy. The idea is that that we as the body of Christ have something that binds us together beyond just a common cause. We're not just on the same team, that there's something deeper for us. Fellowship is when we get together because we are brothers and sisters in Christ and we share life together, sometimes bad casseroles together. Whatever it is, we do life together because it's the intimacy of who we are together in Christ that binds us together. Say fellowship. This isn't just people rallying behind a cause or supporting the same team. This is deeper. This is intimacy. This is opening yourself up to be part of other people's lives in a way where you can be together intimately. My wife and I have four sons, four boys, Seth, Aiden, Grayson, and Hayes. They are uh, two in high school, one in elementary, or two in elementary school. And my uh, second son, Aiden, who is 14, almost 15, I don't know how to say this well, he is, he is my wayward son, um, everybody else in the family are Dallas Mavericks fans, and he is not. <laughs> it is daily disappointing for me. So he decided years ago he was going to be the bandwagon kid. We love watching basketball. When the Golden State Warriors were good, he was a Golden State Warriors fan. And so, you know, this is the constant battle in our house. When the Dallas Mavericks are playing the Golden State Warriors, you know, he's, he gets his Warriors hoodie on and he's ready to watch the Warriors. And I feel this like deep shame, you know, that this is, how could this be my son? You know, he's my wayward son. And we'll like banter, obviously I'm joking, but we'll banter back and forth about who's going to win. And, you know, we'll like, you know, we'll mess with each other when, when one team messes up. And, and in reality, in reality, I don't know if you've experienced this before, but like if you've ever been to a professional game and you're sitting next to people that are fans of the other team, there is a little bit of tension there. There's a tension there. You know, especially if, if you've ever seen like the UT Oklahoma game at the Cotton Bowl and everybody's sitting together and there's UT fans and Oklahoma fans. I'm not a fan of either, but those people are together in the stadium and you can just like almost feel palpably the tension that goes on between those people. Because they're on different teams. My son and I, there could be that tension. There's a possibility for it to be that tension. But here's the reality. That's my son. That's my son. If my son decided one day that he likes Coca-Cola better than Dr. Pepper, I might find great disappointment in that, but it doesn't change the reality that he's my son. If he decides he wants to be a fan of the Golden State Warriors and not the, you know, not the God-given Dallas Mavericks, I might find disappointment in him, but he's still my son. Let me translate that a little more for you. If you grew up thinking that the only way to have worship in a church is with a piano and an organ, and then you got these young punk worship leaders who come in with drums and guitars, there might be the tension to feel that you're disconnected with them, but in reality, you are still brothers and sisters in Christ. You might like pews. You might like chairs. You might wish we still wore suits to church. Some of you are, which is fantastic. You might want to wear jeans to church, which is great. Can I just tell you this? What binds us together is not our preferences. What binds us together is who we are in Christ. Can you say fellowship? That's where fellowship happens. Is when we recognize that it's not our preferences that bind us together, but it's who we are in Christ. We've been divided for too long on our preferences. 
And what the world needs to see is that we're all together. Look, all the, all the junk that's going on in America right now, all the craziness. Can I just tell you that the moment, and it's coming, when it's illegal to say non-woke statements from the pulpit, I'll be the first person that's arrested. Man, I make fun of white people. I make fun of brown people. I make fun of black people. I make, you know, I used to tell when I lead worship, I, I would mess with people and I'd say, you know, all, all you white people, everybody's convinced you that you don't have any rhythm. Have you ever noticed that? Everybody just stands with their hands in their pockets like this. Have you ever been to a black church or a Mexican church? There's none of that. You know what I'm saying? Like, the moment we can recognize that it doesn't matter what color your skin is. It doesn't matter how you grew up. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. If you're in Christ, you're in Christ. There's no longer Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female. We are all now one in Christ. The world, listen, your Facebook post doesn't change the world. It doesn't. What changes the world is when the world sees us doing fellowship together, even though our preferences are different. That's the picture the world needs to see. They need to see people from different backgrounds, of different skin colors, of different socioeconomic status, together. Because what binds us together is Jesus, and that's it. Listen, as Christians, we weren't meant to do life on our own. We're meant to do life with people. My mom and dad had this dog named Sebastian. He was a uh, little, I don't know, one of those like, one of those dogs that like you could put in a bag. Side note, if your dog fits in a bag, that's not a dog, it's an accessory. <laughs> I don't know why people land. Can I bring my dog? And, um, they had this dog named Sebastian. My mom passed away about seven years ago and my, my dad still had this dog, Sebastian. And he called me one day and he said, Mike, I think Sebastian's dying. So I went over there to check on him and Sebastian like wouldn't walk. He would, his back legs wouldn't move. He would get up and like scoot on his front paws and he would barely eat and barely drink. And I was like, yeah, that, that's awful, dad. I hate it. He doesn't look like he's doing very good. And my sister, who's like the animal lover of all time, she, uh, she, she said, I'll take Sebastian. I'll, she had a couple little kids at this point. She's like, we'll, we'll care for Sebastian until he dies. So my sister calls me about a week after she took Sebastian and she goes, hey, Sebastian's just fine. I was like, what? She goes, yeah, as soon as he got over here and the kids started playing with him, he like perked up and started eating and started running and playing and he's just fine. What was wrong with him? He was lonely. We weren't meant to do life on our own. We were meant to have an intimate bond with people where we learn God's word together, where we, we, we grow together. We're meant to be together. That's why the death rate of suicides and depression climbed so much last year because we weren't meant to be on our own. We were meant to be together, so be together. Devote yourself to fellowship. The next thing it says is they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. Let me just rush through this, this section real quick because we're running out of time. Breaking of bread. We are a, a, a culture that gets this to some degree. We get that there's an importance of eating together, but let me just explain to you the Jewish tradition of this. So they would often gather at somebody's house. If I was going to James's house for dinner, as the head of the house, James would stand up, pray for the meal, and he would actually take the bread and break it. That was his role. And what it signified is that we together were sharing in a meal. And so it says they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread, implying that what they were doing is gathering in each other's homes and eating together. They were gathering together to eat. I have no idea, no idea what it is about food that makes fellowship and growth together happen, but it's, there's, something about, there's something about food 
I have no idea what it is. It's, it's, it's a crucial part of us doing life together is eating together. I know that sounds so weird. Let me just exemplify it for you, my, uh, of, of how important it is and how much it affects us. Uh, my family, I have some family that has a house in Pagosa Springs, Colorado, and my, my wife and my kids and some of our extended family will go up there for about a week every August after I get done with summer camps and just go hang out in Pagosa Springs, Colorado. And we'll, there's a lot of activities in that area, and so we'll all kind of do our own things during the day. Uh, a few years ago, there was probably about 15 people in the house. So we'd done all our own things throughout the day. Everybody was tired. We ate dinner together. And because everybody was tired after dinner, they all kind of went to their own rooms and did their own things. You know, people playing board games. Some kids are watching movies. You know, the adults are on Facebook. Facebook. Everybody's doing their own thing. And I was hungry. I always get hungry. I always need something sweet after dinner. And I went and looked through the cabinets and there wasn't anything sweet. There wasn't any ice cream in the freezer. There wasn't anything I wanted. And I was like, what am I going to do? And then I thought, "Mm, my mom taught me how to make cinnamon toast back in the day. So I took some bread, got it all slathered with butter because it's healthy like that. And I put the cinnamon and sugar on. I, I, four pieces. I made myself, myself, just for me, four pieces of cinnamon toast. I stuck that in the oven. No joke, about three minutes later, people's heads start popping around the corner going... Next thing you know, there's 12 people in the kitchen like, what are you making? What are you making? And so all these people start coming in for more cinnamon toast. So what do I do? I slather more bread with butter and I put more cinnamon sugar on and I put, the, put that in the oven. And literally for the next hour, we stood in the kitchen together eating cinnamon toast, talking about our day. I have no idea what it is about food, but here's the reality. You want to grow together? Eat together. Some of you are like, yes. For all you health freaks out there, bring a salad. Let the rest of us enjoy it, you know? A crucial part of doing life together is eating together. In fact, if you want to you you invite someone over to do life with them just to hang out, eat. Eat. There's even something psychological about eating together that bonds you together. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Say teaching. They devoted themselves to fellowship. Say fellowship. Come on. They devoted, them, devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. Say breaking of bread. They ate together, and the last thing they said is that they devoted themselves to the prayers. I want you to notice that it says the prayers, plural. It's plural. They prayed together, not just a prayer, but they devoted themselves to praying together always. My dad told me when I was in college, um, before I... Before I met my, who was going to be my wife, he said, Micah, when you like start dating a girl seriously, let me just give you a warning. He said, there is something intimate about prayer. He said, it is important that you pray with your girlfriend, but never pray with her alone by yourselves in a room. He said, because that leads to other things. He said, there's an intimacy that happens when we pray together that is, is something we probably can't explain. That's why it's so important for husbands and wives to pray together for parents and kids to pray together, for a church body to pray together. He said, don't just, he goes, just understand that there's an intimacy that's built when you pray together. So protect the purity of that relationship by not, not putting that in the wrong context. I, and so I told my friends this, and I had a, one friend who was like, nah, that's not the case. And then they got pregnant when they were in college. I, I mean, okay, bad example of what it can lead to, but like as a point... Church, you want to grow together? Pray together. I'm not talking about Sundays praying for boxes. That's fantastic. 
When's the last time you found out about someone in need in the church and you didn't just get off the phone or get the text about it and, and just say a quick prayer? When's the last time you went over to their house and put your hands on them and gave them a hug and just prayed for them? When's the last time you picked up the phone and called them and said, hey, I know that things aren't going so well. Let me just pray for you. I don't know what it is about prayer either, but it develops this intimacy amongst us that is an intimacy that can't be had in anything else. Have you ever noticed that that's what Jesus did? When he was done with all of his ministry, he would leave everybody else and he would go spend intimate time with his father doing what? Praying. Praying. They devoted themselves to the apostles' prayer. And it says, the last thing, sorry, that wasn't the last thing. This is the last thing. (laughs) I want you to notice verse 44. And all who believed were together and they had all things in common. They had all things in common. I had an economics professor in college tell our class that Acts chapter 2 verse 44 was the first example of socialism. And uh, I was half asleep in the back of the class with my hat pulled down over my face and I popped up and I raised my hand and I was like, uh, nope, not the case. This isn't socialism. This isn't, this isn't equity. What this is, is us being one. And when there's a need and you have excess, we meet it. When someone has a need, we meet it. This isn't saying we all have to have the same. This is a a heart saying we are all together one body. I don't want, I don't, the ugliest part of my body is my pinky toe. It's just gross. My nail doesn't grow right. I hate my pinky toe. One day I broke my pinky toe and it was the worst two weeks of my entire life. The moment I stopped caring for the thing that I think is the worst part of my body, the entire body suffers. The book of James He's railing on the church in Jerusalem because the rich are not caring for the poor. It says they had all things in common. What does that mean? It means that their heart was for the body and they met the needs of the people regardless, regardless of their preferences. The best example of this I've ever seen was in the southern Philippines. I was there years ago. Um, we were doing a conference just gathering some of the local Filipino missionaries who were reaching the Muslims in Southeast Asia together. And there were some, there were some, how do I describe this well? Some fairly well off, upper middle class women from the United States of America that one afternoon set some chairs out in one of the pavilions at the place we were meeting with these missionaries. These Filipino missionaries who literally have nothing, who literally bought tickets on coconut ships so they could sit on the coconuts and ride 14 hours to get to this conference. These missionaries who have like two pairs of clothes and three pairs of underwear and one pair of shoes and don't have enough money to eat anything except for rice so that they can reach the Muslims with the gospel. So these American women set these chairs out and they had these Filipino ladies sit on these chairs. Their feet were dirty. They weren't clean. And these American women, in all their prestige and nice clothes, and they smelled great, they got down on their hands and knees. And they washed their feet. And they brought lotions. And like all that smelly good stuff that you ladies have. And they began to put it on these these ladies. And it was this gesture of like, we're the same. We're the same. You have a need, I want to meet it. 
But can I just tell you, church, if you think giving your 10% is what God wants, you've missed the point. If 10% is fantastic, when's the last time you met somebody's need? Don't do this like I've given my offering to the church and then be done. Are, are we even willing to sacrifice our presents for our kids and our grandkids because we know about some other kids who don't have presents? Are we willing to give up some of our luxury if we find out someone else has a need? I started buying cryptocurrency this year. Man, it's fun. And there's a good chance that in the next couple months, I'm going to make some like killer money in crypto, like percentage-wise. Here's the question. What am I going to do with that? Am I going to hoard it or am I going to recognize, man, if there's a need and for the first time in my life, I might have a little bit of excess, do I mean it? What are, you, what are we doing? What are we doing? They had everything in common. They had everything in common. We're now one in the body of Christ. This is, we're doing this together. When's the last time you met somebody's need? Or maybe let me say it like this. When's the last time you pushed down your pride and told someone else that you had a need? One of the hardest things to do is to tell someone, I need help. Listen, we're in this together. Let's be one. Let's do it together. Let's do it together. What happened when the church acted like the church when they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching? Say teaching. What happens when they devoted themselves to the fellowship? Say fellowship. What happens when they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread? Say breaking of bread. What happened when they prayed together? Say prayer. What happened when they had everything in common? Say everything in common. It says that God added to their number daily those who were being saved. God added to their number daily those who were being saved. When the church acts like one body, when the church acts like the church, the world starts getting saved. That, that's, that's the work we do. The world on the outside is going, wait a minute. Y'all are like doing life together. Like you're wearing a suit, he's wearing shorts. You like this kind of music, he likes this kind of music. You eat this kind of food, they eat this kind of food. You live in a big house, they live in a small house. And y'all are doing life together? Meeting each other's needs, praying together, eating together? The world goes, I want some of that. And what we're able to say is, you want some of that? You know how you get that? Jesus. Because he breaks all barriers. And he makes us one. When we act like the church, God adds daily to the number of people who are being saved. Let me close with just one more story. There was a family in my dad's church years ago who my dad found out had a, had a need, had a great financial need. And uh, so he came before the church at the Sunday after he found out about it and said, just found out about this family who has this need. Um, we're just gonna do a special offering today to, to give some money to this family. Need didn't say who the family was, just said we got in this special offering. So they took the offering and Monday morning, um, this couple came into my dad's office and said, hey, we heard what you said yesterday about the family that, that had a need. Um, we, wanna, we wanna help out. They said, we don't have a whole lot of money right now, but we have a little, we, you know, we scraped up everything we could, so they gave him this, this little bit of money and said, we want you to give this to the family, and they walked out. Uh, that family, that couple that gave my dad the money was the one that they were taking up the offering for the day before. And now, when they tell that story, 
the husband is a border patrol agent. When he tells that story to other people in the border patrol, he's told me that there are people who have curiosities now about Jesus because he's like, what would drive you to do that? People, when they see the church act like the church, they're curious about Jesus. You want to do gospel ministry? Let's start by acting together as the church. So here's my question for us as we close today. Is that you? Is that you? Are you doing life with other people? Are you praying together? Are you eating together? Are you learning the word of God together? Are you gathering together for fellowship, doing life together? Are you meeting each other's needs? Is that you? Is that you? Listen, I've been in church a long time. I go to churches all over the place. And churches... The one thing that we struggle with on a consistent basis is thinking that this makes us the church, that our Sunday morning attendance makes us the church. Can I tell you something? There's going to be a lot of people in hell who went to church their entire life. This doesn't make you a Christian. This doesn't make you a good person. The only thing that could do that is Jesus. And if you're here today and you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, you've been redeemed by the power of the blood of Jesus Christ, you've been made holy in the sight of God, you've been made righteous, you are now called a son and daughter of God. Jesus calls you the church. He calls you his bride. We are now one body. Are you acting like one body? Outside of Sunday are these things that go on in your life. The second question is, are you part of this body? Are you doing life with this body? I am incredibly young, but old enough to remember all the pains and sufferings that we went through and all the transitions that have happened in the last 20 years. We fight about music. We fight about pews. We fight about whether the lights are right. We fight about whether the sound system's too loud. We fight about whether we have Sunday school classes or home groups. We fight about whether we should wear hats in church or not. We fight about all these ridiculous things. And the one thing missing in so many of our conversations is how do we actually act together as the church in spite of our preferences? My question for you is, are you willing to put your preferences aside and say, I want the world to see a picture of Jesus, so I'm going to act as part of this community as someone who wants to be a gospel proclaimer as part of the church. Is that you? Is that you?